Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery Podcast WikiHole. You know what a WikiHole is. We've all been there. You look up a certain celebrity to see how tall they are and whether they've said anything cringe about vaccines. Before you know it, you're 10 minutes into reading about something called a toast sandwich. That's basically what it's like to listen to WikiHole, only funnier. Every episode is a new rabbit hole to explore with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends, loaded with unforgettable new information you'll literally never need to know. And that's why it's great. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Well, uh, I'm usually your host. I'm actually currently working on my book. Side note, it's coming out in like 20 months, so watch this space for more details. But there were comedians that needed to be interviewed about how they think and make their comedy, so we thought we'd have guest hosts. First, let me introduce your interviewer, who probably doesn't need much introduction considering he's been on this show like 17 times before. The last time was last December when he was promoting his incredible third Comedy Central special, Imperfect Messenger, which you can and should watch on Paramount+. Plus. He spoke with Moses Storm, whose debut hour special Trash White, which premiered on HBO Max earlier this year, tells his story of growing up below the poverty line. Roy, besides you know being just like one of the great talkers about comedy ever, uh, was also important in motivating Moses to try to do something greater with his first hour. The interview is not exactly like a traditional good one. It's a it's a bit looser, but it definitely has the show's spirit. It was it was also the first time I ever got to just listen to an episode of this podcast. And you know what? I'm a fan. <laughs> As we do, we're going to start with a joke. This is from Trash White. Uh, it's hard to describe, but I, I, I do recommend it. At minimum, Googling what Moses looked like for this special, because... You just got to know that Moses is dressed in all white and the set is made up of a bunch of like painted white debris. And also the stage is a screen. So in the story, when it gets to a part where um, some characters are throwing up, it plays like a beautiful wash of color. So here is Moses Storm. You can't buy everything you want on food stamps, right? And even when we would buy things that are not like food stamp approved, we would still get the shitty poor person version of it. Anytime we wanted ice cream, my mom would buy us that giant, clear value bucket of ice cream. Did you ever get those? You know what I mean? Where, like, you read it, it's like, like too cheap to even be a real flavor. You read it, it's like, we got white and we got darker white. What's darker white? Is that supposed to be vanilla bean? Why are there pinto beans in there? And this is true. My mom only bought us that ice cream bucket because she wanted the actual bucket. (laughs) At Walmart, a mopping bucket costs $6.99. Value bucket filled with ice cream, $4.99. 
It was cheaper than an empty bucket. Do you know how shitty your ice cream has to be to actually depreciate the value of an empty bucket? To be like, I don't want that bucket. If that ice cream's even touched it, it might ruin my dirty mop water. Now, the truth about food stamps is it's a broken system. You pay too much for it as a taxpayer. Also, for the families that are on it, it's not enough. You always run out of food stamps. So what most families do is they, one just won't eat when they run out, or they'll go to a food bank and get the dented cans. It did, I'll get off it, but it did seem suspicious that all of the cans were dented. All of them? It's like, are they doing that? Or how are you guys shopping? We're like, what is this, low sodium corn? If you don't want to do that, you don't want the pandering programs, you can take a little agency over your life. Yeah, it's humiliating, but you can dumpster dive for food. Whatever the grocery store throws out that's expired or is about to expire, we would take that. And I just hated my job dumpster diving. I, I had to be the lookout. I, I was the smallest, so I couldn't be in the cool-ass dumpster with my siblings. I had to be the lookout. That's the worst job in a heist movie. I'm not even lookout for something cool like cash or diamonds. I'm the lookout for garbage. Something we've all unanimously decided we do not want to look at. So there's no job. Every once in a while, a car would drive by, and then I would just be out front just... <laughs> the face of dumpster diving. Really the flyer of dumpster diving. E, E. coli, E, E, E. coli. That's what people want to know. That's the next question, right? Did we ever get sick eating from the dumpster? Of course. <laughs> when I was nine years old, we were living in this really terrible part of Florida called Florida. And <laughs> no one's ever made that joke before. Anytime we wanted to go swimming, we couldn't afford our own pool. What we would do is we would break into a condo community or an apartment complex or even a country club in an upscale area, pretend we lived where you live so we could use your pool. Some of you know this as a crime. We were about to break into the nicest pool in Florida, Blue Water Bay. Only downside of Blue Water Bay is it has a shit ton of security to the point where it made me mad how much security there was. There was a guard shack security guard, a roaming security guard, and just a pool security guard. My mom is all about doubling up, not just cheer camp and basketball camp. So she's like, okay, if we're gonna drive all the way out to this nice neighborhood, first we're gonna stop off at their grocery store dumpster, see what these Richies are throwing out. <laughs> I had never seen anything like it. This grocery store's freezers went down. So they threw out their entire ice cream department at once. Every kind of name brand non-bucket ice cream is now in three large blue trash bags sitting in this dumpster. Hershey's, Klondike, whatever the fuck Sherbert is supposed to be. <laughs> My four siblings and I would waste no time right there back of the store just start shoveling half-melted ice cream into our face as fast as possible. Just like little raccoons before this all melts. <laughs> And I feel that judgment from the crowd. <laughs> Gross! You're gonna eat dumpster ice cream? Yeah, it's ice cream. Do you know how good ice cream is? 
Ice cream is so good. It's the only food that all of us in this room will willingly eat out of a stranger's windowless van. <laughs> and we're excited about it. Oh, yay, it's the ice cream man. Send the kids alone. Surely that'll be safe. He is only playing the world's scariest clown music. <laughs> dressed in all white. What kind of pervert dresses in all white? So my four siblings and I waste no time. We, we polish off three large trash bags of ice cream between the five of us in under 15 minutes. I don't know if you've ever had to speed eat dairy in the sun. We are not doing well. Have you ever been, have you ever been so full that you feel it in your neck? <laughs> Every burp is so high stakes. Every, every burp is a contraction for the barf baby that you're about to deliver. Like, it's kicking. It has a pulse. Like, if I lived in Texas right now, it'd be illegal to throw this up. <laughs> that baby's got a pulse in there. I'll snitch on you. So my mom, thank God, being the one adult in this whole situation, gets a look at us and is like, okay, you guys do not look well, so pool day is still definitely on. <laughs> I'm not driving back this way again. Rally, let's go. <laughs> I get to this pool. It is packed with other families. So all the security guards are out. The guard shack security guard, the roaming security guard, and just the pool security guard. My mom is like, okay, look at me. Look at me, don't freak out. Just stick with the regular plan when breaking into one of these pools. Every kid spreads out as far as possible. One by one, you enter the pool from different sides. When it's safe, you can meet in the middle. We're not gonna flash mob people with poverty. <laughs> the second that I jump in on my side of the pool, I know that I'm gonna vomit. <laughs> so my plan is to just put my mouth under the water so it won't make a sound, and then just so, so much. It looked like I had eaten nothing but 700 vanilla lava lamps. The, the amount that came out was just like, oh my God. I think I figured out how they make darker white. This kid with red hair, he comes to the surface of the pool, and he goes, oh my God. Because he had the full IMAX 3D experience below. That causes my older brother, Jonah, who was already not doing well. He turns, he sees me, and then he starts vomiting. Because vomiting is a lot like those inspirational quotes that white girls will post online. Very contagious and embarrassing when it slips out of your mouth in public. So he just starts, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. That triggers my two sisters over here to just Shoot for the moon, you might land amongst the stars. And then finally, my older brother, David, just If you want a rainbow, you're gonna have to put up with some rain. So now... There are five kids simultaneously inspiring the shit out of one pool. Which turns out is way too many kids to be throwing up at once. I know that because the other parents at this pool are now freaking the fuck out. 
because we are all so far spread out in this pool, it doesn't look like some isolated incident. In their minds, it looks like some sort of violent super virus has swept over the entire pool, causing kids to explode. Kids are screaming. Parents are pulling their kids out by the arms. There's kids throwing up that didn't even eat trash bags of ice cream. Fuck is your excuse? I get out of the pool. The entire pool is ruined. And I remember just thinking to myself, man, this place needs better security. Moses Storm. How you doing, old friend? That pause makes it sound way more dramatic than it's You, you be. know why? Because I, I am happy for you. And it's like, it's this weird moment of like, fuck yeah, someone who deserves it got it. And now he gets to bask in it. And I'm just so happy. For, like, just, I don't know, like a weird, I don't know, older cousin or some shit. It's just like, fuck yeah, man. That's great to hear. So I think we should preface this by saying that Roy Wood Jr. is the first comedian. You are the first comedian that I ever met in person. Uh, in 2008, we were making, um, I wouldn't say quality videos. I would say uh, topical videos yeah they had some viral success but it was very burnable content of like uh, you know susan boyles in the news and we would do a video about that and secretly was always too embarrassed and insecure to ever do stand-up so when i found out that you were a stand-up comedian uh endlessly picked your brain as much as i could as a 18 year old and uh, you were the first person that said if you want to do it you just have to go to open mics and do it and now it's 10 years later and uh i now we're here moses stone yeah. now you understand that yeah. pause represents the journey so yes this is a podcast about jokes and i want to make sure i uplift old jesse's mission here so let's start first with the bit and then we'll backtrack into your evolution because i am very curious about you finding at a younger age like i started at 19 and i feel like i did not find my north star until about 37 35 maybe i was starting to show inklings of the type of performer i would be in my hour special is that when i met you at 35 no, no, I was younger. I was I was even younger. I'd say maybe 28-ish, 30-ish, somewhere in there. I'm 43 now, so you do the math. I don't know. Oh, but, in my head, yeah, you were like a fully formed person of like, this guy knows what he wants. Yeah, so as an 18-year-old, I was like, this is the oldest person I've ever met. Based on <laughs> just your ability to communicate ideas on set of like this is what a joke is it's funnier if we do this if i come to the door i can't remember what that project was but you came to the door and you're like it's funnier if i say this i was like holy shit uh okay so let's honor uh jesse david fox's show 
Walk me through the genesis of that bit, because I feel like what we're talking about right now really ties into that, because Mm -hmm. what you're doing, you're speaking to a bigger issue, which is poverty and what poverty really is like, the truth of poverty, but using your own experiences to tie into a national conversation. So the first thing you have to be comfortable with as a performer is getting on stage and going, all right, I'm going to tell a joke and risk failure. But you chose to go on stage and literally put the imperfections of not only yourself, but your family on Front Street for the greater sacrifice of informing people in a way, and we'll get to this a little later, that did not feel like you were beating me over the head. It just felt like a story. And then lo and behold, it's connected to everything in the world. So walk me through this bit and how you made the decision like this story, this is the one. So in a no bullshit way, because I think you would call me out immediately if it was bullshit, is uh, I was talking to you at the Conan Team Coco house uh, all-star game. Team Coco, Conan O'Brien were, were doing shows around. That was right before COVID. The, we got COVID there. Like that is where COVID yeah. was spread at the shows that you and I were doing. Valentine's weekend 2020. Yes. Valentine's weekend. Yes. So it was just now coming to America or it had already been in any a public event is responsible for where we are today. So we were the last irresponsible event. And thank you for those free tickets, Conan. That was great to go to the All-Star game. Um, I was talking to you because Chris Redd and I were, were hosting a show. And then I came out and I did this story that kind of didn't go that well. And it's about... Eat a, eating from the trash and uh, and then breaking into a country club and it completely spoils it, but we throw up everywhere and we get kicked out of the country club. And I was talking to you of like, I don't like the awes that I hear from the audience. It's worse than fuck you, idiot, or complete silence is when you hear aw from the audience. That yeah. means I have fundamentally not done my job as a comedian. My job is to- feel sorry for be, you. Yes. If you if it means you have to fart on a balloon, right, and then fall down, if that's what it takes, fulfill the job as a comedian. You go to this room, you eat bad chicken wings, so you can maybe feel this feeling of ha ha he he ha ha. I forgot about my life, and as I was investing in my own life and sharing things, I was saying, oh, I noticed that some of the facts it gets like ah oh, from people or people come at me after like thank you so much for sharing that. So I talked to you backstage uh, right before your show of like wanting to cut that and not feel that feeling of like, could I just talk about poverty or talk about dating apps? And uh, if someone's opinion who I've, I, you could tell me to do anything and I would do it, respected so much. And you said, do not cut that. That is you. That is, if you're uncomfortable with it, that's exactly what you should be leaning into. There's enough jokes in there. Just you buy it and you stop selling yourself short and try to bail on it and, and try to take care of them. Just say that this is you. Because I, initially I had a bunch of stuff in there that was kind of bailing out of like, I know it sucks, but, you know, whatever. What are you going to do? Um, and then, uh, yeah, so you're the reason that that's in that special. And that's why I chose it for this. Wow, man. Wow. Well, I'm honored. I'll I'll say that, you know, I've always felt like 
you as a comedian, there's a there's a bit of respectful envy in the sense that I wish I'd have been that courageous that early. Like I'm just now, I'll be 44 this yeah. year and I'm just now starting to unpack, oh, I should be talking about the weird relationship with my father and how it informs my relationship with my son. That's what I should, oh shit, I have to figure it and you had already had that and i'm like watching from the side i'm like yes the pain give them more of yeah. the pain which it doesn't go well and it really goes against what we want to do you and i is like at the end of the day make people laugh right yeah, but you want them to feel and i feel like that's the that's the differentiation between the comedians that we remember in our lives i think it's mm -hmm. the the feeling that also comes along with the joke, especially if you're talking about stuff that's introspective. What what I what I what I love about the bit, you know, from 2020 till now, is that you did something that I thought was very interesting. You did it throughout the special, and it was very slick how you did it. And I and I wonder if this was intentional. But let's just go through this joke sequentially because you start with kind of a wider view of the system as a whole. You know, we talk about food stamps and how food stamps only allow you this type of food and how this thing, the 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 shitty ice cream in the bucket, which is very nostalgic to begin with. Yeah. But you are happy in that space before we get to any of the at, at, at its core. This is this is a story. Of, it's a joke about fucking poverty. But yeah. in that you're excited. And then you go from there into food stamps and the whole broken system of it and how people are paying it and the the den it can. So just walk me through the first the first couple yeah. of parts of that and how you chose to sequence out, you know, some of the bit. So 100 percent. And this is 100 percent honesty. I wish I could reshoot the special. I watch it and there's so many things that I hate and I feel like what I was trying to do does not come across. It is only, and I have no talent backbone, people's response to it and people saying that this is great that I'm like, oh, I guess it's all right. So the biggest thing that I have to address is the phrase uh, TED Talk special. I'm not going to do a TED Talk special. And then in the very next sentence, start talking about the cerebral cortex, how poverty affects the brain, and then literally pull out a PowerPoint remote and start doing essentially a TED Talk. So the whole special in my head, here's the game plan. I only feel comfortable saying this to you because I feel like you know all the devices in comedy. It's setting up part two. Growing up in the cult, the cult is a, a grift that you get people involved. We grew up grifting. So it's something as simple as breaking into, into condo communities and apartment complex. What you do in the grift, what my mom would do, and you've worked in radio, is you say what you're not going to do in the grift, and then you do that exact same thing. Call a radio mm -hmm. station around Christmas. I know a lot of people take advantage of you guys around Christmas, but I just want to let you know that we are not one of those families, and uh, your show has gotten through us a, through a, a very rough time where our house just burned down. It did not. And... Uh, we just want to let you know we don't want anything from you, but uh, your show has gotten us through it. And then that was the way that the radio station or people would call in wow. and provide for it. So the the whole special is about forgiveness. I forgive my mom as I make my own mistakes as an adult. And rather than just say I forgive you, 
what if I say everything that you taught me, everything that I was running from and it was painful, what if I did that? What if it worked to my advantage? So the whole special is a grift. I used everything you mm. taught me, all the mistakes. And uh, so I'm saying I'm not going to do a TED Talk special. And then I start doing a TED Talk special, which is the grift. That's what I don't know comes across, but that's at least what I'm trying to do. That That's brilliant, man, because I didn't – it didn't come across as that to me, but I think part of that was because of the set decoration. You had a lot of great choices, uh, you know, you and your director in terms of the camera angles, because even playing directly overhead and using the floor as a display instead of a back wall monitor, those things are very specific choices. Embedding the visuals into the into like setting you like to the left third of the screen or overlaying the visuals over you, the way that you infused media into it, it did not feel like that. Yeah, because if you're holding a remote, it can help, it can feel like a TED Talk, and it can feel like a gimmick. And you're wearing a live and... mic too. I understand. Yeah, yeah. But the whole thing is is reacting not to, and I've gotten uh, messages about this of people like, yeah, fuck yeah, take down the net. That was boring. And it's just the opposite. The net was great. It's not stand up. Who gives a shit? It's better than stand up. What I'm saying when I say TED Talk is the response. To Nanette. So many, and it's mainly male comedians, got upset that it went well for her and that she pulled off people something like that. Yeah. People went, it went great for Hannah. And she pulled it off and it was authentic to her. And then men tried to do this thing of like, Nanette, for, but for boys. Of like, here's how you should do it. And then it was not authentic. It was mainly an article that they had pulled from of like, this is what psychological in the brain. And, uh, yeah, it was this very weird aggro move. So when I say TED Talk, it was uh, it was referencing the response to that. The problem is in editing, because I directed this and co-edited this as well, is uh, I had to cut a, uh, the longer part of that joke. So the second part is I'm not doing a TED Talk special. It's more important than it is funny. Uh, you know those comedians. They come on stage. And this is the part that was cut. They come on stage, they got big fucking fat Jordans on, they're woker than thou, and they're all nice on stage and they're a real piece of shit off stage. You know those guys? In the process of editing, in those two months, uh, woke had become a alt-right dog whistle. And uh, I did it in complete good faith at the time, but then uh, it knew what it meant now in the edit, so then pulled that out. So now it's just reading like I'm shitting on any special that has an authentic moment. So that's why I'm like, wish I could reshoot. I don't think anyone in the comedy community, at least the people that I've talked to about your special, and I talked to some very picky-ass comedians, I'll name names when we get off the air, Okay. Um, who who rock with it and didn't see it as some dig or a takedown. And if anybody's doing that just for the style and the jokes don't honor it, I just think that the style, the material has to justify the style and the delivery. It was I had the same conversation with uh, Hasan Minhaj before he did Homecoming King. I had the joy of being at the Daily Show with him when he was the the like 1.0 ideation of this is the material, but I'm trying to figure out a way visually to do this, this, and this to make it something that is 
visually engaging in addition to the material, because I think that's an important part of it. Unfortunately, whether we love it or hate it as performers, we're dealing with short attention span audiences. So if you're playing with angles, if you're playing with audio inserts, if you are able to use your body more because you don't have a handheld mic or a mic stand, your body becomes more of an instrument and a tool for performance. So just even just literally the body languages that you're able to intonate, you have another weapon in your back pocket, which you need because it's you're using the back. You're using downstage. You're using upstage. You're coming like you're what like I'd say. Chris Rock and Cat Williams are very lateral comedians. Yeah, they're very left oh, to yeah, right. The pacing side to side. Yeah. But you are also front to back. And granted, your stage is a little more narrow, but front to back is also a different emotion in terms of connecting or withdrawing from the audience. And so and I think that's a very important part of this material, because I think if you sit and play this as a straight up regular special performatively, certain moments would not connect the same. They just don't. Yeah. You know, because you go from that into breaking down dumpster diving. And that's the other thing that was cool about this bit is that as a white person, right? Mm -hmm. Like as a, as a non-person of the black, you know what I'm saying? And not just white. Like if it was just listening to this, like I do look like what you would be casted in an eighties movie about like a rich person. Like this would be the rich bully. Right. So it's, poverty from a perspective that you traditionally do not get it from and our views of what poverty is is always been shaped i would say traditionally by people that visually fit the bill more so mm-hmm. you go into the de- like i didn't know that about the dennet cans i like you start talking about dumpster diving like the, i'll be honest that ain't nothing i ever heard about in the hood i've heard of i've been around broke black people Broke black people that I know, we ain't in no dumpsters. No one that yeah. I grew up around, they would not do that. I ain't never been that. Bro- I might go and beg for the food off to the side of the door at the end of the night and things like that. But to actually. It is the lowest low. Everyone thinks it's the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth. It's just anytime you are in a dumpster is the lowest low. People would would uh, drive by. They would get out of their car and they would just give us cash. To essentially pay us to not be bummer extras in their life of like, could you just not do this? Like kids in a dumpster is bumming me out. So selfishly, I'm going to give you money. So you stop doing With this. You as a lookout. <laughs> like that's like that concept. Yeah. Because if that, if that existed, black comedians would have already been doing jokes about that is what I'm trying to say. Like that would have already been a known part of that journey into, you know, financial stability. But, you know, to, to go into that, with just a level of matter of factness, the same as I go to the grocery store. Like, no, we dumpster dive. And when we're on the good side of town, we make sure to dumpster dive because that's where the the strategy in it. It's like, come on, man. Honestly, like that, that was you. So that's what I mean by that Valentine's Day show of I think I had a much more fat section up top of being like, I know it's gross. Could you imagine me in there? And you were like, just don't apologize for it. Just say what it is. This is your experience, right? So just say that. So then I cut that whole first half. and was like, yeah, it's humiliating, but we would dumpster dive for food. And then I gave a reason behind it, it, it because sometimes the programs can be more humiliating as a poor person. The programs where you have to depend on the state. 
Everything is delivered. Nothing is free in this life. What you are getting in free food, you are paying for in absolute humiliation. Going to a homeless shelter, getting a brown bag of dented cans, being around people that are like in withdrawals from methadone, and just the pandering attitude. Even when we would call a radio station and some white family would help us out and they'd be like, here's some money. It was always like, isn't this great? Doesn't this fix everything for you? And you'd have to play it up and be like, yeah, this is great. Mm. I was poor. And now I'm not because I got this one gift card. When you go back and look at the Dennett cans and the dumpster diving, was it difficult to process that or were you already past it? Hence, that's why you were in a place to be able to talk about it on stage. I don't know if you are past it ever. It's still humiliating. So that what makes it more humiliating is if you say that on stage and it doesn't pay off. If you don't get the laugh. <laughs> Uh, that's why I was like, I want to cut it because it feels so bad. If I'm talking about like Tinder be weird and that doesn't go well, that's fine. But if I say something that I'm legitimately to this day humiliated about, it's fucking humiliating to be in a wet dumpster with trash and there's dead animals in there sometimes. It's fucking humiliating. And if it doesn't get the laugh, if it doesn't get the payoff, then you just expose yourself for no gain. Guys are vulnerable on dates because they think they're going to get some. And if you don't get some, it's like, what the fuck? Why did I open up about my stupid mom? So it was that feeling. And that's what I was wrestling with the entire special. Um, And just trying to think like, oh, what if you don't get a part two? And my stomach dropped thinking about that. If you say all these things and you set up this grift special and that should be revealed in part two. And by the time this comes out, no one's going to remember this interview. um, What... You know, is that worth it if you're saying all these things? And uh, yeah, I was like, I don't know what else to do. This is what is the funny to me. And it could feel very unhealthily like a payment for the past. Maybe if these things I'm embarrassed about were turned into comedy and an actual uh, dollar amount, then it'll feel like all that stuff happened for a reason. So then at this point in the bit, We've gone into the humiliation of dumpster diving. And then we jump back out to talk about ice cream and ice cream trucks and why this ice cream is better than the ice cream. So now we're back into the world again. And now it's something that's, you know, a lot more relatable. Like, because <laughs> the, the line, what kind of pervert wears all white? Like, yeah. in my head... It, it's it's that level of detail of looking at an ice cream. Like, I just envision you sitting online, looking at pictures of ice cream trucks, going back in your head to the memories of it, everything, the smells, how did they park, what did the guy talk like, what did he sound like, and really finding those other spots. Was that, was that part, how important was that part of the bit to build the bridge to once you get into the swimming pool. It's something that I've seen Mike Barbiglia do, I've seen you do, where every time they're telling a personal story or something, it's this very specific thing, you draw people in, you keep bringing them back around. You keep going back and like, here's a thing that you could connect to. I know this is not your life experience. Most people have not dumpster dived before, but we've all been to an ice cream truck. So it was those things of trying, essentially really to not bum people out with a bunch of heavy facts. And just bring it back to like, here's a funny thing. Like, it's insane. Like, writing that in the pandemic of like, you know, it's insane that we eat from essentially just a guy's truck. 
Uh, so yes, that was a conscious choice to keep stopping down with a very broad thing and then go into a specific thing. And I feel like you've done that really well because a lot of comedians sometimes can just do the race stuff. And then it's like, well, your whole audience is every kind of race, every kind of life experience. And you always bring people back in. The British, the British black guy is one of the funniest bits. <laughs> I've, it's one, the whole special, I was mid-editing mine, my special. So every day looking at my own face, cringing, hating everything. And I kind of felt of good. I was like, okay, we're at a point where it's uh, most of the embarrassing parts are cut out. We got it. I watched Imperfect Messenger and I was, no shit, depressed for two days. The best oh. compliment you could hear as a comedian is I hate, I, it was so good. It's everything you should do. It's you bring people in. It's got heart. It's got solid, solid fucking jokes. Everything comes back around. You say that now, but you're also the first stand-up I've ever seen in 24 years to end his comedy special on a cliffhanger. Oh, yeah. With a sequel oh, coming. shit. Bro, that ain't normal writing, bro. That ain't normal writing, bro. That's clever shit. Like, when's part two? I can't wait. Like, you didn't... You didn't say the cliffhanger and then good night. No, it's just like cut it out. And then I kept going that night. If anyone was at the taping, I, I did what essentially a few jokes from what I had. And the show's about 70% done. By no means is it done. And I talked to Hassan about this. Of uh, The reason it's in there is one, I, I want to paint myself into a corner. It's very uncomfortable to talk about all that stuff. I, I don't feel smart enough sometimes to shit on other religions and what people believe It's because like, I don't know myself. So mm -hmm. that stuff has gone so not well in the past that I'm trying to paint myself into a corner. <laughs> so now I've promised this thing that I have to deliver. And it's the only way I'm going to get it done. It's like I said this thing. If part two is like, you know, let's talk about how I never owned a dog. That People are like, what the fuck? So... The other part was trying to pay off everything I did as like, this is not an important special. This is not that. And then pay off the thing of like, the whole thing was a grift. I said it wasn't important, but it was an important thing to me. And I was actually saying something that essentially could be in a TED talk or a post that world. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was a cliffhanger and I'd up to the very last second thought about cutting it. I was with no. JP and I think we were at the final no. color correction and I was like, do I, should I just cut it? Because I I don't I don't really have the show mm -hmm. fully. It was perfect, man. It was it was perfect. And it's this it's this daring thing that also I believe, you know, Chris Rock talks about comedians and how fear is an essential part of the process. And if you lose fear, then you've lost your edge. So you should always maintain that. So I mean, honestly, you leaving that in. It just creates a degree of difficulty for yourself that I know you'll, you know, you'll be able to rise up to. And honestly, I don't, you know, and I don't know the the wealth of, I don't know the wealth of content that you're going to pull from for whatever you do next. But I would imagine yeah. it couldn't be as emotionally naked as what some of this material was. And so at this point in the bit, what I love is that I feel like now as an audience, we're on board. Like, and I, I roll over to my girlfriend on the couch and I go, this is like some real life episode of shameless type shit right here. Yeah. Like I could, 
I could see William H. Macy grabbing a tub of ice cream and then meandering into the pool with yeah. the family coming in all from different corners of the pool to get around the security. <laughs> like I know, and I get I do get angry watching Shameless because there's a great anchor point in that he's an addict. So the reason that their life is so difficult is that he has addiction problems. He's an alcoholic. Uh, drug problems so you kind of buy and that's a lot of people's experience unfortunately in america where we prioritize uh, pharmaceutical companies that a lot of people struggle with addiction so it's this great north star everyone can relate to my north star the reason that we were so poor was honestly because of this cult this this unabashed belief and this need to feel special and be a part of something that was bigger than themselves the cult is why we were so poor and it's not I don't have a lot to uh, pull from. I don't meet a lot of people. I meet people from cults, and they were in successful ones that did well, and it was this national story, and the FBI was after them. I don't meet people that were in one, dedicated, and it never worked out. Like, we don't have an episode two of our documentary. Have you ever watched any of those documentaries on Netflix or even listened to podcasts? I watched the one. What's the Oregon one? What's the Oregon cult? Oh, yeah, that's cult? Wild Wild Country. So undoubtedly, all those cults, they have, um, they always have an episode two where everything is going great. They said, we have more signups than ever. I was doing yoga. I was breathing better. My diabetes went away. Uh, my wife and I were communicating. And then, yeah. dong, dreadnought plays. And then they do the turn at the end. We never had that first part of episode two in the cult. <laughs> it never went well. No money. No one was asking for this. So, yeah, it's about painting myself into a corner and trying to set that up and testing the audience being like, here's the thing that uh, might bum you out, but uh, this might get us to what uh, two is going to be. And so at this point in the bit, we get to what I call the stand by me moment with mm-hmm. the Python contest where everybody started. One person vomit, everybody vomit, everybody at the Python contest was vomiting. Your siblings, did you go back and talk to them at all? I saw something on Amazon about the way we re-remember things as we get older. It's flawed. It's flawed. Yeah. Did you just trust your, did you go with your own account of the events or did you kind of take all five accounts and kind of piece together the best possible way to convey what happened? Yeah. Uh, I went with my account, um, which I don't know how you square that of what's the responsibility because it is a personal thing and I understand if my siblings would be upset watching it because it's like, well, that wasn't our experience. It was actually much worse than that and you seem to be sugarcoating things because essentially I'm not talented enough as a comedian right now to really pull off the absolute depth of why we were there what that happened and, and then take us out that's all you have to do yeah. anyone can say a f- sad fact the talent in a comedian is pulling you out what hannah did with that is like here's this awful thing i was assaulted and then pulls you out i'm not there yet i'm not talented enough i don't have the skill yet and yeah, dick gregory could do it how do you do that though how do you do it with uh, your people in your life that did not sign up to be in the entertainment industry? So where this bit is, 
you will always have ownership over what happened to you and how it made you feel. Mm-hmm. And even if the even if your truth changes or evolves and you're less mad, you you were in the dumpster. You were the one that's getting looked at weird by soup kitchen volunteers who think because they showed up for four hours today, they've changed, they've moved, you know, mountain right. for everybody. So you own that. Now what you have to be comfortable with is the weird looks from your family from time to time or the angry text message from time to time. There are still things, there's still stories about my father that I could never tell because my mother still is employed. And I know that she has to walk through her life with people knowing certain things about her husband who's not, you know what I mean? It's like, that's not fair to I her. I know exactly what you mean. It's what I'm dealing with, not just right now, but actually today. Um, before I jumped on this, is siblings uh, saying that it the special makes them feel exposed for what happened and that uh, it was maybe irresponsible of me to not include everything that went into it. I omit certain not. stories that are... I don't know how to square that, though. How do you say to someone... This is why I fucking hate anti-PC comedians. It's like, well, you don't get to say what offends someone. And your job is to make people feel good. And if you fuck that up, who gives a shit about, about, oh, you can't say anything anymore. Well, you make people feel like shit. So how do I square that? It's just advice. I need advice. You can't. You can't because they're wanting you to present a reality that makes them comfortable. What I learned Mm -hmm. with everything with my father is that everybody has compartmentalized trauma in their own way. I have siblings that got done dirty by my pops, and I have siblings that got a different, a totally different motherfucker in their life. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. that just is what it is, because when you're on stage, part of it is for you. It's not for anybody else, and it's not to have their acceptance. They don't necessarily want you to tell the whole story. They want you to tell their version of the truth. And that's not what your job is as a performer. They want to tell their version, send them to an open mic, give them some tips. And then a couple years, let them do whiter trash. (laughs) (laughs) More trash, more furious. So what's a respectful way to say like i acknowledge that that it's you could feel like you're losing control of a very painful time in your life and you don't want this stuff dug up but it is a very painful for me as well and the one way i feel good about this is that i could monetize this i could exploit a poverty narrative for my own selfish gain uh and that's what makes me feel good uh so i don't know how to square but that's that not their- all what it is but that's not all what it is for you. There's also a degree of it's cathartic in a way, because I'm sure if we're talking just response to your special, I'm betting you that there are a lot of more messages that you got from total strangers who said thank you, because there's a degree of stand up that at its best. Um, Doug Stanhope, and I'm going to butcher this quote, and he was half drunk on an album when he mumbled it. I don't even think he realized what he said was so poignant. He said, this is not so much about a career as much as it is in wanting to know that you're not alone in the way you think and move about the world. And to me, that's been, that's my North star. 
you know, I think you just have to explain to them that, you know, I understand that this might have been difficult for you and you're dealing with this in your own way or not dealing with it at all. But this is how I'm choosing to deal with it. And it helps me. And I hope that you figure out a way that works for you to deal with it and everything else after that, bro. You can't control if they love you, they'll come back around, you know, if they don't or if they're very angry about it. They'll figure out a way to unpack it because you've had more time. What you also have to respect that what they haven't had is that you've had more time to reckon with these feelings and process this and internalize it. Like you didn't just get the cover snatched off of you. You're way further down the processing road and they might eventually be in that place. They may not want to go to therapy. They may not have the money for therapy. They may just escapism may be their move. I have siblings. They will forever be escapists emotionally. And there's nothing I can do to change that. But you just have to love them as best you can without it being awkward. Has there give me give me let's while we're in this pocket, talk a little bit more about the response. Okay, so the main response, like the thing that's the most impactful is people DMing me that see the things that aren't in the special, meaning some of the darker topics that I can't and actions and essentially crimes that I can't explain it, but they see it. They know what's happening behind the scenes. So, I mean, if I open up my uh, Instagram DMs right now, Twitter DMs, it is people that have had a similar experience, a worse experience. And there's something that happens when you give a pound of flesh, people will give you 90 pounds back of their own life. So I am getting just, I mean, text blocks of people's absolute pain, which I had to stop reading at a certain point, but of just the darkest things that have ever happened to them, all under the guidelines of like, thank you for doing this. The special meant a lot to us. I also know what you mean. And then they'll just start listing in, in, in their, their pains, like things that are crimes, things that would break your heart if you found out about. So that is what my DMs. It's not like Instagram models being like, hey, it's on the special kill. It's mostly that. And it's uh, a lot to carry. And I don't know how healthy it is for me to respond to those or to carry those or um, if the ends justify the means, if it hurts my siblings, if it makes these people feel good. Uh, I don't know. I'm very lost right now. And it's hard when you think you have a bad mom and then the New York Times also calls your mom a bad mom who's not flushed out. <laughs> I think that you have first and foremost above all a responsibility to yourself and your happiness and your wellness period full stop i don't and this is just my own personal convictions but i don't buy into the ideology that i have to suffer in exchange for other people to be comfortable because you know our emotional stability is a finite resource and at some point you know, you stop living for other people and start living for yourself and look at the choices that you want to make that help feed you and what you're doing, you know, and eventually, you know, you start getting into, you know, marriage or kids or long term relationships and all of this other stuff. And you're, you'll see a lot of those things that that are concerned now they aren't necessarily going to be as big later because you're comfortable and you're past it. You have to get past this. So what are you supposed to do? Put all this shit in your back pocket for the rest of your life because it makes some other people sad. 
Well, now it's five sad people instead of four. So I think that, you know, I, it, it's it's difficult. There, there's not an easy solution to it, bro. But I do feel like even if you're not reading, you know, checking your DMs like that anymore, at least you know that on a much deeper level where what this special has done for people. Like, do you consider this special special? Oh, 100%. That's why I put every ounce of my soul so bare of like, I care about this. I built the set. I was there painting it. I did all the graphics and I'm not good at After Effects at all, but I made my own graphics. Obviously edited the video, edited the specials. The first thing I ever co-directed. Every inch of this is me. So when someone's like, this sucks, it's like, you suck. Because there's no one to blame it on. I've been a part of so many bad sitcoms, uh, web series, and it's like, well, yeah, the writing wasn't that good, or no one cares about this washed-up actor, so I was just part of it. This is, uh, everything is carrying this unnecessary weight right now, where I cannot separate myself from it. When people say it's positive, or people say they didn't like it, or you don't get a response that you'd hope for, Everything is like, this is honestly, especially in a pandemic, trying to travel and and do shows uh, on the beach, this is the best that I can do. And if this doesn't work out, I don't know what else I could do. I'll become a guy on TikTok that does like your 30s versus your 20s and the moment the coffee hits and you want to shit. We'll be right back with more Moses Storm and Roy Wood Jr. Support for this episode of Good One comes from the Wondery podcast, WikiHole. Do you know when Crystal Pepsi was discontinued? Or what was in Al Capone's vault? Or which famous meteorologist is Lenny Kravitz's second cousin? If not, then you haven't spent enough time on Wikipedia. But that's okay, because you can learn it all on the new podcast, WikiHole, from Smartless Media. Discover the craziest rabbit holes in Wikipedia with host Darcy Carden and her favorite comedian friends as they bring the cyber frontier directly to your tympanic membrane. And if you listen to Wikihole, you'd learn that that's the sciencey term for eardrum. Wikihole is a hyperlink roller coaster, starting out on one Wikipedia page and then going from link to link to link to link to link, careening through trivia, oddities, and unexpected connections until everyone wonders, how did we get here? Follow Wikihole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Wikihole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Now back to Moses Storm and Roy Wood Jr. You know what I've realized about stand-up comedy is that your entire career, you're just driving in fog with varying levels of visibility. But it never clears up. You, there's never going to be a clear hurrah. Ah, here is the agenda. Like, unless you're 10, 10 seasons in on a CBS sitcom and you know where your meal is coming from. Um, I think that the panic, I think that the discomfort, you know, it drives creativity. And I just don't think, you know, 
like you can sit and concern yourself with the opinions of people that you hold dear and that you love. Yeah. But I don't think that it's going to take you away from that moth, that moth like draw to really to you've already said you're cocking and reloading the cult special. So how much, yeah. how many I'm sorry's can I give <laughs> before I go do the yeah. same thing versus this is how I'm dealing with it. And I love you. And there's nothing personal. I'll figure out a way to reword something that hurts whatever next special yeah but i'm not gonna clear jokes with you i'm not gonna let you see a pass of it people are gonna want to come to the show and then they're gonna message you after the show and say i heard that you said such and such but that's not right hey i don't know what to tell you man but i love you and you show up to family functions when invited and love the ones who love you back and the rest you'll grow like and that's the interesting thing about siblings too is that you grow apart and eventually you come back together more often than not. You know, I have two younger half siblings that are a result of an affair that my father had on my mother. And they've posted pictures on their Facebook. And we're close. We've always been cool or whatever. Yeah. But as an adult, they've posted pictures on Facebook from back in the day when they were out with dad, like out of town or some shit. And I can look at the date stamp in the lower corner of the photo and tell you whether or not the power was on at our house. While Pops was in fucking yeah. Disney World with his two other sons. So we can have the same experience and leave with something different or we can have two different experiences with the same person and leave with something mm -hmm. different. Because I would imagine as you get into the stuff with the cult, that's going to start talking about your relationship with religion, our relationship with religion as people, a parent's responsibility with regards to religion, because you cannot talk about being a child in the cult without there being some form of indictment of adults who were around who allowed you all to be a part of that and questioning that and figuring out the, the humor in it and all of that. And if you're doing that type of coping to work through it, Someone who's just spent the rest of their life going, well, it wasn't that bad. I turned out all right. I got a job and I get I get vacation. I get two weeks vacation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not saying that that's yeah. your siblings, but that's their cope. It ain't your cope and it's never going to be. So you can't you can't cop to that. So if we could, were there parts of. And I don't want you to get there. Tell me the truth. But. Everybody's in the pool and the vomit. Yeah. What, what? So we've gotten into the pool. You all have gotten past the security guards and you've devised this plan. Is the issue with the siblings more of a, well, that's not how the pool thing happened. Uh, is that the, the stakes for us all throwing up in a pool and ruining this is that uh, everyone gets uh, spanked as a kid. Uh, and it's like a paddle that we made. And it's extra fucked up because there's a Bible verse on it that we had to inscribe and then uh, we get beat with this uh, stick. Oh, that's the South for you right there, baby. Right? That's the South. That is exactly, this is uh, Panama City, Florida. If you can't mm -hmm. afford to go to Cabo and you're too drunk for the Jersey Shore, you go to Panama City. PCB, baby. <laughs> so that's like the larger stakes of the story, really. But presently, this this special is a product of the comedian I am today, meaning... I'm not Hassan. I can't 
play black box theaters and then bigger theaters. My job right now is to go to Syracuse, New York in a mall and perform for 300 people that I don't have their attention. I have their business. They are there to buy chicken wings. So you have to have a joke every 15 seconds. You have to pull the ripcord. You have to say, ice cream men are weird. They're the perverts and blah, blah, blah. Because this is a dad who's coming down from fentanyl. His wife dragged him out. He's 48. He doesn't give a fuck about who you are and what your journey is. Your job is a comedian. They hired you at this mall to be the comedian. So you better fucking deliver. So this whole special is a product of the success I have now. I don't do theaters. I don't do black box. I just, I'm a comedian. Mm. I go to comedy clubs. I try my very best to put a thesis in there, do something that I care about. And, and this whole twist of an arc of like, it's actually a grift and it'll pay off five years when I get the next opportunity. <laughs> but watching it back, I'm like, oh, sh-. that's why I, wanna, I say I want to reshoot it. And it's not perfect. It's that, it's no, a but- club comic. But that's but that's what it had to be, and I I mean I I hear what you're saying, and I know that you're gonna have a higher bar for yourself than most, but it's the perfect balance, and that's what I that's what I love about this special, bro, is that it doesn't sit solely in dismissive. Yeah, we were poor anyway. Ice cream. It's like no, let me tell you about yeah. poverty. It sucks. Go deep, go deep, go deep. Ice cream men are perverts sneak into the and then white girl inspirational quotes and Instagram and selfies. So because that's that's the thing that we get into, especially with the first special, is that as a comedy club comedian, for the people who don't understand. You are especially if you're a comedian who has something of interest to talk about. Yeah. You're constantly in a battle of doing the joke you want to do versus the joke that will get you rebooked. And your entire set is an oscillation between those two mediums because the people don't know you. The people aren't quite sure where you're going. But I think that, you know, I'll just I'll just be honest, man. I, I feel like you really you really stoked a balance that it helped to keep it light. And maybe you want to go full Berbiglia. Maybe you want to go full Neil Brennan, the middle microphone, not the jokey one on the left, not the stand-up one on the right, that heavy one in the middle. It seems like you would go 80, 20. If we're using Neil Brennan as an analogy, you want to go heavy, but a little bit of light, but your heavy to light ratio had to be a little heavier for this first special because you developed the, the act in places that demand you have more of a 60-40 blend, if you will. Right. Because, again, going back to the after net, men responding to that with their own TED Talk special, there's all these moments where they're not getting a laugh, but it's some smart article that they read. Uh, yeah, I was trying to get away from that because you can't, you cannot do that shit if you're at a comedy club. You're at Good Nights in, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Guess what? That's yeah, the most Raleigh honest Durham. crowd yeah, you'll ever times. face in your life. They will stand up and, you know, this is big broad, but black audiences will tell you exactly what they think. Correct. When you kill in front of those Red audiences. Too. Of people that Rednecks too. Rednecks have... will show you yeah. f- physicality. Black people tell you, rednecks show you. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Rednecks sh- will show you outside of the track. Well, black people, it's, it's, it is, I don't know, it's just something that's that's, they don't, 
they just tell you honestly and it's so helpful and it's so like i wish every audience was like that i'm just like no that sucks it's like well i'm never gonna say that again so it, it's drawing that balance of of trying to do something that is something you really care about and you're actually saying something that's not dating be weird dolphins dolphins have sex with each other what the fuck <laughs> and uh and then just bumming people out where they feel like they've accomplished something like you, oh, if I watched that special at two o'clock in the afternoon, I was laying horizontal. I actually got something done because I informed myself about this poverty issue. Um, here's something you shouldn't say, but the first time I did that show was during the taping of that show. I can't Love do it. that at at the places that I perform. I can't Love perform. It vulnerability i'm not talented enough as an actor there are those people that can say the stop down where i talk about forgiving my mom there are comedians that are much more talented than me that could say that and be vulnerable and then repeat that night after night i am not there yet i am not i don't have that talent so I, that was the first time i said that it was during the taping that's what you had to do with your special was build it in 20 minute chunks and then the other 40 is whatever whatever gets you through the gig and gets you the money and the people are satisfied. But you take that 20 and you nurture that all week. And then next week, you nurture another 20 that you know is going to be in the hour. Yeah. But that's a long way to build. That's the long way to build in an hour when it's much more better to be able to just repetitiously do it the way that you want to do it. Do you, what do you remember? Yeah, the job, the whole special is essentially a job application. I want to perform in theaters, so let me make it look like a theater show. Let me build the set. Uh, I chose the lenses, I chose the angles. So I was like, well, let me shoot this like a theatrical special because that's what I want to play. So uh, here's my best ability to do this now as a essentially club comedian right now in bumfuck nowhere you've ever heard of. They're booking me because. Some because uh, Chris Tucker dropped out, so I'm here, and so it's a job application for like I want to do these serious shows where I can dig deeper and I can actually do the TED Talk special without being like isn't this label doing TED Talk <laughs> and just be vulnerable and just be like this is something I care about this connects with people, so that is what it is. The projector that was the first time I ever used that. I, I, so we were rehearsing that as we were seating people. I was firing it and it made a mistake every single time of the yeah. ink and the. You're uh, thinking about the performance the and the literal mechanics of it. Of my PowerPoint for my TED Talk. Yes. Yeah. And uh, how you held the remote. And how you held the remote and you kind of kept that shit tucked up in your cuff a little bit because you didn't want it out the whole time until it was time to actually press the button. I had to put white tape over it so it wouldn't so it wouldn't uh, do it. But the whole thing was yes, trying to make if this is my shot. And Dimitri Martin was like, "No one shot is your shot to me because I was very anxious before." And I was like, "Well, yeah, but this is one of them though. If my one shot, the let me go, let me go for broke, let me try to do everything." So it was making the Chris Chris Rock making the special special. I, I watch stand-up. I love it more than anything. I load the dishwasher while stand-up is on. Let me give them a reason to make this visual. You should sit down and watch this. So let me make it this a visual thing you have to engage with. 
I think a lot of the time in this, you were, again, a very big inspiration where you were saying to be like, stand-up needs to evolve. I hope we can do that next thing. And now that streaming services are so many, there's so many opportunities, stand-up is more and more visual and less and less album. So why yeah. haven't we adjusted that other side? It's also important to have a partner that trusts you to do what you want to do the way you want to do it, even if you're still feeling that out right up until the moment that the lights go down and it's time to start the show. Like that part of it, like that fear, that's what's really amazing. Walk me through that then. Let's stay in that pocket for a second. Walk me through the ideation of the set deck and the look and every, because the names that you're dropping right now, you you know, you've dropped Dimitri, you've dropped Hassan, you've dropped Berbiglia, and these are all mm -hmm. people that do something in a way that is very like they have a way of bringing sitting the audience down, and you're gonna pay attention, motherfucker. I'm yeah, gonna make sure yes. that you are looking at what I'm doing. Dimitri has an aesthetic that is him. That is like indie movie. Uh, Hassan is someone that I, I've just been talking to for advice of like, I don't, is it a bad idea to end a special on a cliffhanger of a show that's only 70% done? Um, but yes, it was about bringing the other 50% up. In a real way, I joined the DGA and directed this special so I could direct specials for comedians like yourself which i think imperfect messenger suffers is that and you don't have to agree with this or say anything because you are still presently employed it is shot like a comedy central special absolutely netflix has changed the game they made it expensive they you can choose lenses now you can have depth of feel i want to direct specials for comedians like you that deserve better you deserve a visual thing because your special is it's good it's important it's all the things it's saying something and it's shot like uh, like a like an award show the issue is that from the creative side when you look at comedy central as a network over the last 20 years and what specials were visually you know in the early aughts even you know late 98 or whatever comedy central mm -hmm. was always a volume company they were always, we're going to shoot 15 half-hour specials. We're going to shoot, like, even with This Is Not Happening, when I took over for Ari Shafir. So as the amount of specials they aired decreased over the years because of the rise of Netflix and everywhere else, the ideology never left. I think another evolution is that we maybe get away from the hour and maybe a comedian has four 15s over the course of a year. And maybe that all tails yeah. together, like some part one, part two, you know, type shit. You know, which I, is you know, I don't a know. very important way to look at stand up present day. In that, the way it's consumed is TikTok, and it affects the way you that you write is Instagram clips, subtitles, Instagram clips. Is this gonna is this gonna be good as a one minute video? So essentially, taping a special, and this is very dark to say, and I hate this is like, I, now I have a high-quality footage that I can now upload on TikTok. More people are going to see these <laughs> than will ever see your full special, and that sucks so much, especially for people like me who are trying to say one big thing over the course of an hour. It's these burnable jokes that can just be, huh, uh, 
Uh-huh. In between butt mods. That's our job. <laughs> that's how people that's how you're putting butts in seats. That's how people are finding out about Taylor Tomlinson is in between teens dancing. It's like, oh, here's a great joke from Taylor Tomlinson. Correct. Because somebody did a duet. Yes. It did great because she had put all this work in on TikTok of putting her stuff there. So then when she posted the special, of course it took off. So Comedy Central has always been this thing. And again, you don't have to reply to this, but it is this always thing of like, can you make the money back? Is it cheap Correct. to produce this? Are we going to make our money back with advertisers? And that's the and that's the model. That's and that's their that's the name of their game. Right down to my special having a three month delay before it got to Paramount Plus, which is where I'm now yeah. getting a lot more traction. Where people can actually watch it. Correct, because you're also getting into well, what do we want the app to be? Well, what does MTV want their app to be? Well, what does VH1? Okay, let's get some R and D together. Next thing you know, I've already put out two specials that are hard to access because the logistics of the app could be too glitchy. But then for me, the thing is that it it's it's sometimes le- it's less than ideal. But for me, it was also, once I understood what the game was, this who I'm in bed with, so let's do it. Yeah, let's do another special, yeah. man. I know it's gonna take a minute. Now, to that whole point of TikTok and everything, how does that, what, what, is, what is your writing process? You don't strike me as the person that writes for TikTok bits. If it's in there, great. But it seems like when you're really honing in on your feelings that you got to give fuck all to how it's going to be marketed. I write to what's fun to perform. I just like performing. If it wasn't seen as a disgusting thing, if I have no problem if someone wrote a joke for me and I get to perform it, pure performer. I just like performing. So the writing process is essentially an idea that I will physically, because I can't really read or write, uh, is I will physically walk around the apartment and talk things out like I'm performing. So like a psycho will be saying full bits out. Oh, you would fit in well in New York. Have you done that? Like on the way to a gig, you put headphones in so it looks like you're talking to someone and just fully talk out a bit. Yeah. Just like in Union Square, I've been there. Yes, it's just like fully saying something. And then the other thing, yeah. Um, and uh, so that's all essentially come up with ideas is, is that you're talking out loud and then you can see it. But it's never, the only thing that will happen is a bullet point would be written down or one word that will remind me of the joke. But it is never, I've never written out a joke. You've never like verbatimed? No. Never. I remember when they go well. I think if you're dyslexic and dysgraphic, you are forced to listen. It gives you this advantage where you know that you can't. People in class, like, I could take a note and I can go back and look at the note. If I'm listening to a talk or anything, it's like I have to process everything because there's no backup plan. It's just <laughs> what they are saying auditorily right now. So then I know then what you look for in your material, which is the things that have brought you the most pain or at least raised the most questions about your past, how do you sparse what's too heavy for stage versus this part of it works versus this part, the audience don't need to get every, like how do you, how do you, you know, when you're looking for material, how do you sift between pain but funny and that's just too deep or didn't the net just open up the whole doors to just no go there yeah it is it's not a thing of like this is irresponsible and i want to save things for myself it is honestly just hitting a talent threshold of 
I wish I was talented enough to pull off a joke about physical abuse and then bring it back. Unfortunately, with the opportunities I'm getting right now, hopefully the special will change it. I would be able to, if you do a theater show, you have people's attention. You don't just have their business. That's what comedy clubs are. You have their business because you provide a service of chicken wings. People are going through all the thoughts in their head of like, how much is this? If I get another entree, is that going to cost more? If you're in a theater seat, you're right there. You are just looking at that performer. So you can take them on this ride. You can bring them down and bring them up. So it's less of a responsible thing of, of oh, I want to save something for me. And just, I don't know how to do that. And I'm slowly learning how to tell something that's a huge bummer and then pull people out because at the end of the day it's a purest thing of like you are a comedian that's the job if you didn't do that i don't care how important it was if you made someone i forgave my father you didn't make him laugh that was the job and it's just that (laughs) it's just that it's fun when they're laughing so is the special just that or can you acknowledge that there was some degree because you said and i want let me get this right you said, yeah. the, as I call it, I call it the thesis statement. I feel like great comedy specials have a thesis of some sort, whether stated or unstated. You said, quote, I simply want to tell you what it feels like to be poor. Mm-hmm. And you said it in the middle of the special and it's almost you threw it away. It's not like you said in it like some Captain James T. Kirk poignant moment or whatever. But does this special truly have no agenda in that bigger sense because you made the people laugh so you can be honest yeah um it goes back to the griff thing there's definitely agenda and the main agenda is setting up two which is remember that grift that's exactly what a cult is that's exactly what that whole special is my mom taught me how to do that so there is that agenda what I mean by no agenda in the other sense is there's not actionable steps. I don't want people marching outside of City Hall being like, stop calling people on food stamps, food insecure. There's no yeah. agenda in that way. I don't, it's not a campaign for an Emmy or to be important. It's just uh, the promise of more work. I'm I'm working so I can work more is really maybe the main agenda and trying to differentiate myself from the men that were mad at Nanette for no reason. I'm just like, let me just tell you what it feels like to be poor. I don't have any articles or statistics or infographics to show you outside of ink and water. Shut up, white man. No one wants to hear your pain. (laughs) And it doesn't come across like that, man. It does not come across like that. And I think a lot of that has to do with the level of sincerity with which you approach, you know, the material, you know, this is, you know, we, we talked about the TED Talk analogy. This is some weird hybrid. You ever seen a picture of a liger? One of them lion tiger mixed things? Only Napoleon Dynamite, not a real one, but yeah. I don't even know if they're real. Maybe they're Photoshop. But this stand-up one-person show you know when you were when you were developing this was it more straight up stand up or did you always know that this was eventually going to have to be something that was closer to a one person show like how much did you want the stand up to one person ratio or were you still filling that out right up until the day 
if I could do a one person show, if I was at that point in my career, I would have absolutely done that. Get the, you know, do an off Broadway run or even at Cherry Lane. But it was just that oh, I perform at comedy clubs because that's what I can get right now. And that's how I pay my bills. It was that. And then, it, honestly, in 2016, is the first time I essentially did a version of the show. And it was all gimmicks, and the jokes were not strong enough to not distract from the gimmicks. The gimmicks can't be the part that people remember. I had a part where mm-hmm. everyone had headlamps on, and they would, uh, with a laser pointer on it. So I could see exactly when I lose people's attention in a joke. So everyone got to play with a flashlight in the crowd. I had a point where I had a a suit made entirely of ropes and I was attached to every audience member and they could pull me for any act out and do whatever they wanted. Whoa. Um, The problem was in the show, if I'm being honest with myself, is like, oh, honestly, the gimmicks are more, are stronger than the actual jokes that you're delivering. So I threw that idea out and just went on on the road as a pure stand-up making people laugh that are drunk, have never heard of me. Uh, And then when it was time for the special, when I got that opportunity, it was trying to meld those two together, bring back some of the flashy gimmicks that uh, if you're a purist comedian, there's a lot to talk shit about in this special. Um, And then bringing those back. But if the jokes are strong enough and they're stronger than ink and water and a projector or documentary footage, which is a big pet peeve of mine when comedians take (laughs) a shortcut, and show you a documentary <laughs> thing of like, well, you just cheated. Like, that's what you should do on stage. So that's why I purposely had the stage be a screen and I kept the audience in the margins of that shot and Correct. not run away from that and not cut out of the special. It's like, this is screen for this audience. I have purposely shots I've chose where the projection is over me in white clothes so you can see that I'm in the room um, and not do that cheat that sometimes documentary footage can feel like where they almost have to prove to you how true the joke is. Yeah, I understand that. So, yes, it was a lot to ask for, and this is why I did so much of the work myself, is I was asking a lot. These people are used to producing, essentially, Comedy Central specials, where it's a stage, a curtain, three purple lights, and there's the jib shot that's swooping in on your trauma. And I was asking for a little bit more, so I was like, well, if I do more than that, will be an incentive for everyone else to help me out. Yeah, there's a there, there's the, the other thing that is really frustrating, you know, when you're developing a stand-up special also is that, you know, to a large degree, a lot of people's jobs are on the line on the success mm-hmm. or failure of your creative whimsy. So they're more inclined to keep you in a traditional box to make sure that, they're still able to produce specials after yours in case your shit is too much of a train wreck. So, Yes, outside I, of JP I, uh, that works at Conan, everything was a battle to get. Down to even the credits and special thanks of asking for, I want a shot of the stage swooping. Yeah, it was people that were like, we're going to do it this way because we know this works. We know this formula and the things you are doing are not normal. So if it doesn't work out, you know, we could lose our jobs. So the stakes yeah. are real and it's very understandable. So it's just fighting and trying to reassure them that this might work out. Time will reveal it later, but I really believe that this joke about vomiting in the pool, like that's going to be one of your signature. I love that bit. That I love that story because also you still, and this is where the comedy clubs help. You still yeah. clean it up with a killer punchline at the end about the place needing better security. 
and what's what's cool about that punchline is that you don't overset it up. It's just a very casual throw. There's security, and we snuck past them. Yeah. Instead of the security was was not good. Security, security, security. Like the word count for the callback is kind of how I. It, the less times you can say the word that you're calling back to, the more powerful the callback is. And you probably say security maybe two times. Two times you get that bigger surprise. Yeah. Yeah. One time to plant it, a second time to make sure it stays in your brain. And then I'm going to go on a five minute run and then just tie it all up nice and in a bow. All right, so now it's time for the laughing round. Like, not lightning round. The laughing round. Moses, are you ready? Uh, after that sound effect, yes. These are quick quick questions, man. Just quick questions. You know, we'll try and keep it quick. All right, first question. What advice for people newer to comedy would you give? Because oh, man. you're in the TikTok generation, working hard to get a Learn. late night set. It's not the same learn how to edit on your computer that is the bigger part of the job more than ever uh if you could edit out the shit you said wrong i mean physically editing in a program like adobe premiere it's not the best advice but it is very important advice in that that is how you are going to make it and stand out now is your own digital presence you could reach more people than you would ever reach in a sold out comedy club for an entire weekend tape everything Every bad set you do, tape it and then edit it down and get it out there. You're essentially just reminding people that you're alive and you do this thing. And it's unfortunate, but that's what is rewarded right now. What you think about this stand up in the metaverse? You going to get you an Oculus headset? I've been a part of every bad version of stand up. I did all the Zoom shows, not <laughs> Zoom shows, I did drive in shows, I did the outdoor shows. I did VR stand up in 2015 when no one was even asking for it. It doesn't work, <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> you you get heckled by people just like wandering around like people don't walk right they just zoom past the screen <laughs> it's insane you you can only you can barely hear your advice but uh the last piece of advice would just reiterate what you said to me when i first started and it's like get on stage and do it because now 10 years later having a special in the bag and then having someone that you would look up to be like hey that wasn't terrible that was great um yeah, it's very rewarding to hear that from you. And uh, yeah, it's just get on stage because there's no advice. There's no book you're going to read. It's just you have to spend more time performing than you do anything else. And you might have a shot. <laughs> you might have a shot. Do you have a favorite joke joke or like a street joke? I don't really have any. Never. And I always cringe at that because it's like that's what people expect when you get into the Uber and you just landed in Charlotte and they're like, oh, you're a comedian, which don't ever make that mistake. I don't know any of those. And I hate how easy those are because I think it's opposite to your and I style, which is like a story joke and a whole thing. It's not just one line of like this pedophile is walking the kids through the woods and the kids like, I'm scared. He's like, you're scared. I got to walk out of here alone. <laughs> Great street joke. But that sticks out of my head uh, is like, that is what's expected when you ask that. So stupid. What's what's your cover? What's your cover occupation when you don't feel like talking about I do comedy to strangers? Uh, so, you know, video game streams. I set up the land networks for um, 
for streaming events. I, we lay all the cable. Yeah, it's our company. Zero follow-up. You want to know mine? This is why I like you, bro. So boring. So deeply. Yes, what is it? Mine has been for two decades, I install corporate alarm systems in new buildings that are being constructed. And we lay cameras no follow and cords. Up. None. None. I telemarket it for. Maybe. Does that pay well? Maybe that. Sometimes I'll say I do lights. Yeah. For big. We got a big event. I'm doing the monster yeah. truck thing. But you have to know what's happening in town for that one to be a you solid got, cover. They know because most of the towns that we play are small towns. So how long did it take you to learn that you should never say, I do comedy and tonight, actually, Thursday night, I'm performing at the blah, blah, blah club. 10, 12 years. Because there's a stretch where you want that, the adulation. You want someone to go, oh, wow, you do comedy? Really? Mm-hmm. And you want that Getting little picked bit up of, in a Honda Civic? Look at you. Yeah. You want the little yeah. pat on the head. And then after a while, it's like, just please shut up. I don't want to talk to you about whether or not Chappelle was right in what he did. Oh. The, how do you feel about this divisive issue? I'm sure I'm headed I'm headed back on the road in two weeks. And I know I'm going to have to answer a bunch of Joe Rogan Spotify questions. And I don't fucking feel like it. Right. How do you feel about cancel culture? I don't care. I want to get to the hotel. Is there a joke you wish you could steal? Yes, which would be very offensive, but I would steal black British people from you because I just want to perform okay. that. It's funner than anything. <laughs> I wish I could do that of um, Idris Elba. <laughs> I do on the telly. It's a terrible accent. And then uh, I think his name is, I don't know how to say his last name, but it's Joe Kowalza. He had this joke that it was uh, the announcer for SNL. Um, He's like, it's less scary to live in the scary part of downtown L.A. if I imagine everything in my head as the announcer from SNL. So he goes in this whole run of it's Don being like, um, Latvian teenager doing push-ups on a dumpster. A buff woman with fangs. And it's, uh, it's just, again, a fun thing to perform. I wish I could steal that. What's a joke that's never worked? that you've had that the audience never laughed at you tweaked it you watched the footage you changed the location of the joke in your act you changed your volume you changed your tempo you changed your stage position you shuffled all of the variables that go into making a joke work and it still got you nothing but you know it's funny i think you could tell how bad your childhood was by how close your shoes needed to be to the bed. Uh, for me, they were on because you were. We were always, yeah. I can't remember how the rest of it goes because I believed in it so much. And when I was talking out in my apartment, I was like, "Fuck yeah, yes!" And then did it. <laughs> and then I think it was Magoobie's joke. Oh, was the first place I did it. Nothing. And I was like, "Oh, Chicago, they'll get it." Nothing. Um, but it was a run about how your how close your shoes needed to be to your bed as a kid, uh, how bad your life was growing up. And sometimes we would sleep in our shoes because like we're about to get evicted. Don't don't say anything. Let's just go. Um, but yeah, I've, I it never worked, and I tried so many different ways. You know your shoes. Where are they when you're like trying different avenues? Where are your shoes? Where should they be? Ugh. Yeah, it's like you need the audience to have been that poor. To yes. even, I don't know. Maybe you do that one at the corporate gigs at the shelters or something. Like, fine. That's what I did. Yeah. 
Yeah, they'll, they'll get it. They'll get it. Uh, yeah, but it it never worked, and it's something I really believed in. Um, and it's it's at the point now where it still it, it has shook me a little bit, but I still believe in that, and I will find a way out of spite to get it in. I had a bit that was so terrible. I only tried it once, and I was like, Yeah, that one's not gonna. I've got to figure out how to f- like. It was like the degree of difficulty was like even ridiculous for me. It was like, it was like the time I tried wasabi, thinking it was guacamole, like for the first time. <laughs> yeah, spicy. I the the bit I can't do the bit, but the thesis statement, if you will, of the bit was: if you're a cop and you if you want to kill people and get away with it don't be a cop join the military and neil brennan was who i talked to about it and he goes well the problem is that you're generalizing both occupations and saying that they're uh-huh. all that so like i don't know if you've ever been on stage and it's one thing to say something that could be twisted into anti-cop but what you don't ever want to be seen as is anti-troop and i'm not anti-troop but I was the biggest red flag for me is you saying anything sort of negative about the troops. It doesn't matter how liberal, granola, whatever you want to say, NPR to everyone is like the troops. That's the one thing we can agree on is the troops. What I have not figured out how to do is to because it's basically getting to the the premise. The statement is, you know, something's wrong in the military. They have their own prison. No other occupation has its own prison. <laughs> And that's not a disrespect to the troop. Those people are guilty. That are, yeah. So I'm trying to speak to the dysfunction in our military. Not dis- And I, the first time I tried it, I, and this is three years ago, and that bit is still in the back of my head. I got to go, how the fuck? Because ultimately, it's a joke about Leavenworth. That's what the joke yeah. is about. But to get there, I'm not trying to disrespect cops. I'm not trying to disrespect the troops. It was this acknowledgement that there is some unchecked level of discipline happening in other occupations, and it's not just the police. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's too politicized. It's just it, it, the, the amount of meat that you get from the, working that crab, it's not worth the risk. And not I tried that joke. I lost the audience for 15 minutes, and I couldn't go back and – well, that joke sucked because you could tell they wanted to unpack it. Say, so you're going not, back to A shit for the next 15 minutes. You're like, oh, okay, military. Can you imagine if Toyota had their own jail? How much you'd have to fuck up at the Toyota dealership to be in Toyota Exactly. Jail? Exactly. If Toyota had their own jail, somebody would go, what the fuck is going on at Toyota? Yeah, <laughs> that they can't, they can't even be trusted in the general population. So then you're doing 15 minutes to dig yourself out of a shit, of shit you know works. Green text bubbles, that means you're poor. Just oh to God. get back to zero, just to get back to zero, I got to just straight throw haymakers. And I've just never been able to get to that that part about they have, a, they have their own jail. What if Baskin Robbins had their own jail? Like... To get there, I have to step through so many thorns. It's just, it's never been worth it. I've never tried it. I'll figure out a way to make it funny on a couch with Seth Meyers. <laughs> Some shit. Right, but it's so prickly. Just People are just ready to hear the worst thing when you say anything about military. They're ready to hear 
a bad opinion, a bad take. It's a joke that I could have gotten away with 10 years ago. Or if I was the type of comedian who only did, like, you know who could do that bit is Jesselnik. Jesselnik could go on stage and do that joke because his premises are dark. And I also have to respect the fact that I had, like, this is weird, but I have a round face. So there's just certain emotions and things I can't do because I'm just seen as happy. I'm a little chubby. So I, why is he angry? Don't be angry. Yeah. So you should be jolly. Yeah. There's a game yeah, called rat potato so, where you look at someone, someone's either a rat or a potato. Uh, you and I were potatoes. And then some people like, just like you look at like that's more leaning on the rat side of features and uh, they can do that stuff. We can't. My girlfriend said, whatever joke you're thinking about doing, just imagine Keenan Thompson trying it and tell me, and that should tell you whether or not you should do the joke. That is how the industry sees you. It's that's coming. Correct. People see me and they're like, that's, oh yeah, that's Dave Franco. If Dave Franco, that would be his opinion. So they see you in the industry, broad <laughs> strokes of people. It's Keenan. So you got to cross those eyes and be like, you know, to make anything kind of work. Last question, brother. Is there any comedian living or dead that you've had an interaction with or would like to have an interaction with at some point in your career? Like, who's the one? Who's the one when you see him on the other side of the room, you still get starstruck, you still get the 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 butterflies? Uh, the weird thing is it's probably someone that has been more influential in my life than anyone and has helped me more and it's people will say about us like oh you're friends you could just like text him and i still see him and i still talk to him i still get starstruck i still get tongue-tied and it's because growing up it was the only thing i watched because we weren't allowed to watch tv so everything was you're sneaking it uh it's conan o'brien it's someone that it doesn't matter how much time we spend on the road together tour there's always this separation where I cannot see this person as a peer or as a person. It's always this larger-than-life figure in my life that has meant so much to me. And it's almost worse that he's, like, funding the special and and <laughs> putting me on TV for the first time that it's this – it makes him larger-than-life even more. It's like this is a person that made your lottery ticket into winning numbers. Uh, so, yeah, and I'm still starstruck, and I still get nervous to talk to him. He's done more for stand-up comedy or as much for stand-up comedy as a lot of different comedic institutions that people, you know, hold in high regard. So, you know, that that's as good a place to end, man. Uh, Moses Storm. Yeah. Oh, the specialist, shit, White Trash. The network is HBO Max. This was uh, the uh, the most beneficial conversation that uh, i've had this week and it made me feel a lot better uh respect the shit out of you you're so funny and uh yeah to hear your thoughts on it it's always this moment of clarity and uh it's uh it means a lot to me that you took this time out so thank you well thank you brother we look forward to what you do next man can't wait for that cult shit and then it'll be acquired for a series and just let me get a part as like the funny black guy janitor in one of the churches on the compound (laughs) Uh, it's going out to Keenan actually so sorry if he does it if he passes (laughs) that's it for another episode of Good One you can stream Trash White on HBO Max 
You can stream Imperfect Messenger and all of Roy's specials on Paramount+. Follow Moses on social media at Moses Storm. Follow Roy on social media at Roywood Jr. Goodwin is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Godwin Shrikashin did our theme song. Write and review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good one's production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Back next Thursday. Have a good one. Support for this episode of Good One came from the Wondery Podcast, WikiHole. WikiHole takes listeners on a wild journey through the most bizarre catacombs of everyone's favorite crowdsourced online encyclopedia. Listen to host Darcy Carden and her funniest comedian friends dive deep into the obscure, the absurd, and the curiously inane. There's truly something for everyone with a taste for oddly fascinating information. Whether you're interested in Crystal Pepsi, Lenny Kravitz, or how Carden's fear of dolphins connects to sets and hats. Follow WikiHole on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to WikiHole ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or an Apple Podcasts. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.